Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You may remember before the world came to a standstill, we were doing an interview series featuring Conservative Party of Canada leadership candidates who were in the midst of a very busy horse race to run for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. We had done a number of these interviews and planned to do them with all of the candidates, in fact, but the world changed. It became apparent that we wouldn't be able to continue the series as we intended, and also we wouldn't be able to cover the race because we now know there is no race for the time being. The Conservative Party of Canada's Leadership Committee has suspended campaigning, suspended fundraising, and ultimately the debates that were planned have been cancelled as well. The committee will be reconvening in May to discuss whether to maintain the original deadline or whether to move things back. Now, safe to say, we thought it was important to continue to have the leadership candidates that weren't yet on the ballot published in our series. The candidates that were on the ballot already and didn't need that push at that particular time, we agreed to postpone until coronavirus was behind us. It's apparent now that this virus is nowhere close to being behind us. And there's also a fair bit of uncertainty about whether the leadership race will pick back up, when it will, and what it will look like when it does. So as such, there was one more leadership interview we conducted that hadn't yet been published in our series, and we agreed at True North it would be unfair to the candidate herself, Leslin Lewis, to not publish this interview, given that it was done. Now, just for context, we recorded this on March 13th, so if it looks like we're not properly socially distanced, it was at a time before things got as bad as they did in the days to come. Although, don't worry, we just did the elbow tap. We didn't break any of the rules that are expected of people that were having these sorts of interactions. I want to thank Leslin Lewis for her patience in this interview not being published until now. And while we realize it may not be the top of mind for a lot of people, given that the race has been suspended, we thought it was important for you to have access to all of the things that we had prepared for this series, even in light of everything that has happened since. So this is just a bonus episode. It's not taking away from the content we're producing regularly throughout the week here at True North or on The Andrew Lawton Show. But do enjoy my interview with Leslin Lewis, leadership candidate for the Conservative Party of Canada. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Very pleased to be sitting down today with one of the candidates who's very quickly established herself, despite not being from the political class, as a force. And that is Leslin Lewis, Toronto-based lawyer, former Conservative candidate, very well educated, and a lot of really interesting policy proposals that we'll get into. Leslin Lewis, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, for having me here. So why are you running? I mentioned in that intro, you're not part of the political class. You're not coming as an MP. You're coming as, by all accounts, an outsider here. Why run? Well, truly, Andrew, I think it's because I want the Canada that I grew up in and the opportunities that I had to be there for my children. And I wasn't happy with the direction that the country was going in. And I thought, instead of complaining about it, why not do something? You're clearly educated, you're accomplished. Why go directly to trying to be Prime Minister, though? Well, the opportunity came up, and I think that my skill sets, given the various things that I've done in my past, I think that they're well suited for the needs of our country at this present time. One of the more interesting things that's happened is this race in a lot of ways was initially, I think, 
the narrative was that it was going to be a coronation, and we're seeing that's not necessarily the case. There are eight candidates at the time uh, that we do this, and there is a deadline coming soon that's going to potentially thin the field a, a bit. You've received the endorsement of, of one prominent social conservative group, a pro-life group right now. Did you run or enter this race as a social conservative, or is that one part of, of what you're trying to really pitch as a broader conservatism? Well, I think that it's, I have a large platform and my ideals, my values uh, seem to be in line with that organization. And so they decided to endorse me. So what is the platform? What's the vision that you have for the Conservative Party of Canada led by Leslin Lewis? Well, I have four pillars that I'm that I'm mainly focusing on. So the first would be democracy. I want to see true democracy from the ground up all the way to voting. I don't believe in forced votes. I, I believe that people should be able to vote their conscience. I believe in upholding the rule of law and our democratic ideals, which includes things like freedom of religion, freedom of expression, freedom of conscience. I believe that those fundamental freedoms need to be enforced and need to be fought for by our elected representatives. And certainly on conscience rights for MPs, this has become a pretty contentious subject, even in the course of the leadership race, but I, I'd say over the last several years, in politics and you've come out further than most of the candidates and that you're not just saying I support the right of MPs in my caucus if you're the leader to be pro-life and advance pro-life bills you've actually committed to specific policies that as leader you would champion even on abortion which I think in the media they're trying to say is a, a political hot potato I know one of them is restricting sex selective abortion ending overseas funding of abortion another why are you prepared to tackle those issues when the conventional wisdom, and I, I put that in quotation marks, is that these are so toxic, no one should touch them? I don't think that is true that that's a conventional wisdom because the majority of Canadians do, do not agree that a child should be aborted on the sole basis that it is, a, it is a female. And so I think that's something that Canadians agree on. And I think that it's very important that we ascertain what the core Canadian values are and that we're not ashamed to put put forth legislation and policies that are, that are in line with that. And I think that leaders need to just come up front and not have it hidden agendas. So what I've done is I've outlined the four policies, which is which focuses on one, no select, sex selective abortions, meaning that girls are going to be viewed equally as boys. Secondly, no coerced abortion. No one should be forced. No woman should be forced into having a, a, an abortion. The third is taxpayers are not comfortable with their tax dollars being used to fund overseas abortions. And the fourth policy uh, deals with pregnancy care centers. So most Canadians are in agreement that if a woman is having a tough situation and she's pregnant and she would like to exercise the choice of having her, her child, that we should make provisions for her. On sex-selective abortion, I think morally most people in the country, I would hope, would agree that it's wrong to make that decision based on you don't want to have a female. And we know that females are, are disproportionately the, the victims of abortion. At the same time, does that not muddy the topic in a way by, by saying that this thing is okay, but only for some reasons? Because the problem with that, you can see, is that 
someone could say, well, no, that's not the reason I'm doing it. I'm doing it for all of these other reasons that the government has deemed are completely valid reasons for abortion. How can you really legislate on motive? Well, there's actually a motion that's been brought forth um, by MP Wagenthal, and it puts the onus on the doctor. So the doctor would ascertain what the, that purpose is, and so it does put the onus on the doctor. But, uh, but I guess the, the problem is that you're not proposing a, a restriction on abortion for third trimester. You're not proposing something that would limit access to abortion more broadly. So why does the motivation make it fundamentally different in your view? Because misogyny is a problem in our society and I think that women need to be valued more and I think that from conception, if, if we're making the statement that a, a female is less valuable than a male, I think that ties into our misogynistic practices and so I would like to see that, that eliminated. It's interesting that you take a, a women's rights approach to abortion when oftentimes I, I think the left tries to position pro-life as being anti-woman? Well, I think that, you know, I think women, we need to stop fighting each other and we actually need to sit down and talk about issues that affect us. And I would like to sit down with women and not have somebody call a woman a murderer because she's pro-abortion or not have the other woman call the, you know, the, her opponent calling her uh, what, that she hates women. So I think that women need to sit down and stop labeling each other and just sit down and say, let's come together and find out what policies are best for us. And maybe men shouldn't decide on those issues. Maybe it should, should just be women that sit down and, and talk about it first before decisions are made. What would you say is the biggest issue that you have with the Conservative Party in its current form that you if you're successful, would rectify? The party, I think, needs to reach out to people who ordinarily don't feel that they fit into the party, but their values are conservative. And in speaking, going around the country and speaking especially within ethnic communities, the majority of these individuals who are immigrants have very strong conservative values, but they have just never identified with the party and they have never, nobody has ever really reached out to them in a meaningful way. And so I think that's something that we need to do in, within the party. I've heard that before, and I think it's very accurate. And I know that Jason Kenney, when he was Minister of Immigration, for example, was going everywhere. And he was trying to go into every temple, every Gurdwara, every ethnic community imaginable. And I know that in Ontario, Patrick Brown, when he was the PC leader, ha had done very similar efforts. Is it that they haven't done it enough, in your view? Is that the message still hasn't gotten into these communities? Or is it just that there are so many of these communities that it will take a lot of time to really get a conservative in there to talk about why the Conservatives might be their political home? I think it's an issue of role modeling. If they don't see themselves as represented, as the leaders, as the people who are making decisions within the party, then they don't feel that there's a place. So I think that we need to start mentor programs and start reaching out and, and, and demonstrating that our party reflects the demographics of Canada. So are you saying the Conservatives have a diversity problem? Yes, I think they do. How do you rectify that without going into the tokenism that a lot of conservatives tend to push back against? Well, I think that people, women are qualified, people of diverse backgrounds are qualified, and it's just a matter of forming, you know, creating bridges 
and, and reaching out to people so that you get qualified people applying. We really want to make sure that standards are kept up, but we know that there are qualified people out there that we need to bring into our big tent. So is that something that, as far as the organizational structure of the Conservatives, that you would have a plan to tackle? And would it be through recruitment, like specifically going to people that meet those factors that you think are underrepresented and saying, hey, you should really consider running as a candidate? Well, I think that it should be organic. And I think that my presence running for leader is, is, says, speaks far more than anything that I could do. So let's ask you about that, because you've had a, a tremendous personal story as well. I mean, coming to Canada from a very young age, uh, a mother in particular that was working, I, I think you've said 80-hour weeks uh, to get you to the point where you can have an MBA, a PhD, a JD, a master's. Was that experience, in your view, something that you think is still viable for Canada? If, if the five-year-old version of yourself were to come to Canada today, do you think that could be replicated? I think Canada is a beacon of hope and opportunity for every every immigrant around the world. We are the envy of the world, but things are changing and th life is becoming far less affordable and it's the, the Canadian dream seems to be slipping away. My parents, when they came here and they would work, you know, two, three jobs, there may not be two, three jobs now to for an immigrant to work. In addition, the taxes, the high taxes may make that not viable anymore. Mm -hmm. So even, you know, owning a home, that was something that was, we, we lived in a very solidly middle class neighborhood as new immigrants. That may not be viable for a new immigrant now. And so the things are just changing drastically in this country. And even the, the thought of homing a home, that may be something that's inconceivable for the average person, even if you're born here now. And so we do have to look at ways that we can make life in Canada more affordable for the average person. I want to get to affordability, but you've touched on immigration there as well, which in the last year and a half, two years, has become very hot button in Canada with illegal immigration essentially being invited by the Prime Minister. And I think as a result of that, there's been some challenges to legal immigration because Canadians, when they don't like what's happening with illegal immigration, we've seen polls show they tend to sour on immigration more broadly. What's your plan for immigration? Well, I think, you know, Canada is a country of immigrants, except for um, the First Nations who were here. But we, we're all immigrants at some point in time. And so it's very important that we have a strong immigration plan. And I think that a strong plan starts with making sure that we highlight the, the good. And the good is legal immigration and legal immigration that builds up this country and that, that meets our needs of this country. So I'm very opposed to illegal immigration. I'm opposed to external entities like the United Nations setting our standards. I believe if somebody does not cross at a legal border, then they are crossing illegally, not irregularly. And I also believe that people crossing from the United States is a safe 
uh, third country, and they, I don't deem them as refugees. I believe that our country needs to be compassionate towards refugees and those fleeing genuine persecution. And I believe that when uh, we entertain illegal immigration, we put not only the le legitimate immigration system at risk, but we also put at risk our capacity to help those who are fleeing genuine persecution. So for legal immigration, is it for you then prioritizing economic immigration that needs to be the priority? Well, economic immigration is important, but we also have to look at the needs of this country. For example, right now, we're not doing a very good job in um, getting young people to go into the skills trades. And so maybe we need to look at the certain countries that have skilled trades and that push those types of professions. And maybe we need to think about bringing people in from those countries in order to fill that need. So my policy will be a very needs-based policy. You've mentioned the United Nations. The current government, of course, inked the Global Compact on Migration, which really did a, a terrible job at a lot of things, but I'd say, or I mean, potentially to them, they'd say did a great job at, at what their goals are. And, and one of them was really blurring the lines between legal and illegal immigration. Would Canada be out of that compact if you're the prime minister? I think that if it undermines our our national security and our immigration process, yes, I think that's something that's very viable. What about the other UN compact which Canada has become a signatory, the Paris Agreement? Well, the Paris Agreement, I also believe that there are challenges with that because, as you see, the last five years, we could have really optimized our natural resources and that would have benefited our economy nationally. It would have also helped First Nations communities who had signed on to resource sharing agreements. And so I believe that um, the Paris Agreement has sometimes allowed external entities to come in and affect our national uh, economic prosperity. And so it, it, it's very serious and I, I would seriously consider um, getting out of it. Now, what would those factors be? Because when you say seriously consider it, would it be that you don't think Canada can meet it or do you think it's fundamentally a, a problem as it exists? Well, I think it, the issue is not whether or not we can meet it because I believe that Canada's environmental standards are far higher than the majority of countries around the world. I actually think that we could exceed it without having um, without even being in the agreement. And so it's, it's not a matter of whether we could meet it or not. I think that our standards are very good. So what would the factors be that you'd weigh on, on whether to pull out of it? It's all a matter, in any international agreement, I'm going to look at whether or not it is nationally beneficial to the country. And if it is not, I'm going to act in the best interest, the national best interest of our country. But I guess where I'm trying to get a little bit more clarity here is that we know what the deal is. We know the numbers. We know how the landscape has been internationally. What is it you still need to know to determine whether it's in Canada's best interest to remain in the Paris Agreement? Well, for me, being a leader is the first among many. So it's not just about pushing your agenda. You will have to work with caucus. You will have to work with you know, various, you'll have to listen to some your constituents, you'll have policy conventions. And so I, I believe that formulation of policies, it, you have to work in conjunction with those people that are a part of your team. 
all, one of your uh, several degrees, I mentioned them earlier, is in environmental studies. And I know that on certainly the current uh, government's track, there tends to be this belief that you can tax your way into fixing the environment, which I, I think everyone in the leadership race agrees is not the way to go about it. Where do you think the Conservatives need to go on, on the environmental issues? Well, my platform it hasn't been fully expanded as yet, and so I, I can give you just some highlights Please. of it. But so my platform is that essentially I want to ensure that Canadians have clean air, clean water, and uncontaminated soil. So essentially I will look at general policies that facilitate that, and those do not include a carbon tax. What do you think the Conservatives need to do to get over this narrative that we see pushed by the media that the Conservatives don't care about the environment? Well, I think that we need robust environmental policies and we need to demonstrate that these policies are intricately connected with all aspects of our policies and economy and just uh, provide very strong environmental policies. Let's take it the clean air part of, of what you want to do. Do you think it's possible to do that without going down the road of excessive regulation or of penalizing uh, high emitters? Well, um, the punitive aspect is only one way of regulating the environment. There's also other mechanisms that you can use. So for example, you can engage businesses in order to implement innovative solutions to reduce emissions. And I think that's the most effective way to um, partner with businesses so that they come up with these solutions on how to reduce the emissions. Yeah, and it's especially concerning in an age where no company is, is as restricted by geography as they have been historically. So we're not just competing uh, with ourselves or competing between provinces. We're competing with the U.S. We're competing globally. And we've seen a number of companies, I mean, especially in the oil and gas sector, you look at Encana recently, that have decided they want to instead domicile in the U.S. And it becomes more and more important for Canada to be competitive. Do you think that you can still be competitive while tackling uh, those environmental uh, issues? Absolutely. I, I don't think that we need policies that are going to um, fetter our, you know, our economic development. So, for example, Bill C-48 and Bill C-69, they basically created a lot of red tape mm -hmm. for the development of our industries and our natural resources. I don't think that we need to have such stringent policies that will diminish economic prosperity. I think that we could have environmental policies in place that address the concerns of making sure that economic production is, is done in an environmentally sustainable manner. Let's look at some of the affordability issues that uh, we touched on earlier, because certainly most people in Canada, I think, are going to say things are not getting more affordable. And even when we've had relative economic highs, in a lot of cases, that hasn't necessarily resulted in the economic impact for people that are in the middle class or people trying to join the middle class, as the political cliche goes. What are things that you think the Conservatives could champion that will just give a, a broad economic boost to the country? Well, firstly, I think that we need to start paying down our debt. And once we pay, start paying down our debt, we'll have more money that can be allocated towards transfer payments. And I am, 
you know, in in support of policies that would include increasing affordable housing transfer payments and increasing infrastructural development and specific mechanisms that will deal with poverty alleviation. What are some of those mechanisms you'd like to explore? Affordable housing, poverty alleviation, and I believe that once those transfer payments are made, then the the provinces then will use them to deal with specific community-based solutions. Let's talk about the provinces then, because right now we've got growing Western alienation, specifically Alberta and Saskatchewan, that seem to be very unhappy with the status quo. I know you've said in the course of the campaign that Wexit's a a very real uh, risk uh, to Canada. You are a lawyer from Toronto, so Albertans might uh, naturally want to just say, I don't know, maybe she's one of these people that we've always had that seems to be turning their back on us. What's your strategy for engaging the West, not just in the course of of your campaign, but in general, if you are the leader of the Conservatives? Well, I don't think that there's any region that we can turn our back on. I think that we're all in this together and that the world is changing so drastically that we have to find common solutions to building our country. With respect to Alberta, it's it's a very serious situation right now because we have frittered away five years of good opportunity to build and and to put away for the rainy days. And unfortunately, right now with the oil prices, oil exploitation is in in Alberta is not economically viable and so we we don't have that that cushion that we should have had from having good production in the last 5 years and so there's going to be some serious serious consequences of that and unfortunately we are going to have to put mechanisms in place to make sure that they don't fall through the cracks because their situation is is quite dire right now do you think that's a byproduct of, of economic downturn or do you think it's a byproduct of Alberta's economy not being diversified enough and, and actually relying too much on oil and gas? Well, diversification is an issue and I think that Albertans are realistic. I've spoken to many of them and some of them in very high level positions and so they realize that they also have to diversify. However, at the point in time where they could have optimized oil exploitation, um, in oil development, they did not. They weren't able to do so. So those funds are no longer there to as a safety net for them. And I think most Albertans realize that they have to create some sort of safety net in order to eventually transition. But the issue is, is that if if we are still reliant on foreign oil and it's feasible to use Alberta oil, then I, I do believe that we as Canadians should should, you know. Uh, should should um, invest in that industry. So pipelines are a go under a Leslin Lewis government. Well, if they're fe- well, pipelines yes are a go it, at this point in time. Given the price of oil, I don't think that there will be a lot of development because it's not economically feasible at this time, unfortunately. So where would you like to see uh, moving forward that dynamic between? the West and the rest of Canada go? Because equalization payments, I I think, are going to be the big battleground here. Is this something that you've considered as you weigh your platform? Well, equalization payments are something that came up extensively in Alberta. And I think that that's something that we will have to consider and, and reconsider because the dynamics of the nation are just changing so drastically. 
Let's talk about the election itself. If you're the leader of the party going up against Justin Trudeau, uh, this is a guy who, despite many, many hitches on his campaign, uh, despite a lot of policy failings in the last couple of years in particular, managed to win. Despite conservatives getting uh, the majority or the plurality of votes, Justin Trudeau won the election and has a, a mandate. Now, you've said that you aren't going to go the road of trying to trigger the downfall of the government right out of the gate. You're going to uh, take a bit of time there. I guess the first part of the question is, why is that? Why take a, a wait and see approach uh, with regards to a, a confidence motion? But going into the election, how do you intend on really moving the conservatives from where they were in 2019 to where you think they need to be for victory, whether it's in 2021, 2023, or whenever that election is? Well, I take seriously the input of the members, and I know that we have a convention coming up, and we're going to be under new leadership. And so I think it's very important to hear from the members as to what the direction of the party should be and, and some policies. And so I think that rather than pushing for no-confidence votes, hearing from the members and getting time, giving the base time to even make sure that they have strong candidates and to run nominations. I think that's a very important process. Consulting with members is important and certainly grassroots need to be at the center of a lot of party discussions. But at the same time, you're a leader. And if you are elected as the leader, is that not a mandate to pursue your own agenda? Because the problem with deferring to members is what if the members pass this party policy, something that is fundamentally at odds with what you as a leader would want? Well, the party policy belongs to the members, right? It's not, it doesn't belong to the leader. It doesn't belong to the party. So the members are the one who, who set that. As a leader, I see myself as, as the first among equals. And so you will need also time to consult with your other caucus members. So if the party members were to pass a, a policy that was uh, in against something that you believed and you campaigned on in the leadership, you would not put that in the platform what you thought personally? Well, for me, it's all about democracy. I'm so concerned that our democratic ideals are being eroded. And so my fundamental, the fundamental thing that undergirds my leadership is upholding the democratic process. And so I think it's very important when the members have spoken about something, I think that's very, very important. And that's why we have uh, delegated membership conventions. We Well, I thought, um, you know, for a lot of people, the, the point of the conventions was to really get a, a cohesive set of policies, but ultimately the platform was the prerogative of the leader because it is a big tent party. And even if 51% of the members vote for a certain policy, there still is a 49% chunk that needs to be represented. So how do you bring those different factions of the party together? Well, that's that's key. We have to make sure that all voices are heard. And so a leader has to make sure that even the dissenting voices are, are taken into consideration. So I don't think it's viable for us to say one side of the party needs to be silenced because they don't because they are not in line with my platform. And I think that a leader has to take all of those things into consideration. And this brings us back to, in many respects, the social policies and, and issues about life. You don't expect everyone in your caucus to have the same view that you do. 
Absolutely not. I expect, and that's why I came to this party. I came to this party because it was a big tent party, because they did not dictate what my views have to be on certain conscience issues. And I think that that, that is, is something that's personal to a, a member and to a member of parliament. And they are going to have different views than me. And I expect that. And I respect that. So as we wrap things up here, I guess I want to ask you one final question, which is depending on your answer, there might be a follow up. But at this point, a final question. Which I is... think there'll be a follow up <laughs> with you, Andrew. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> what, what do you think are, is the biggest issue facing Canada that no one is speaking about? I think, well, I don't know that there is one singular issue. And I think that some of them are intertwined. But I think our our democracy is very important. The erosion of democratic ideals, the lawlessness that we have witnessed in the last few weeks. I think that's very, very important. And that ties into our national unity issue where we see different provinces seem to be, there seems to be a lot of provincial discontent. And also our economy. Our, our economy is something that I really think that we need to work in making sure that there's economic prosperity throughout the entire country. Well, you called it right, because now I'm going to break what I said I was going to do by asking the follow-up on democracy. Do you think that this is something that a change in leadership can fix, or do you think it's a cultural issue that really is going to take some time? I think that a change in, in leadership is a start. I, I don't know how we've reached to the point where we, we, have, we think that it's okay to compel somebody to speak a certain way. We have criminalized certain um, innocuous behavior and we, have, we believe that people should be compelled to vote in a certain way. I don't know how we've allowed that to happen in a free and democratic society, but it's something that I'm very opposed to. Lawyer and conservative leadership candidate, Leslie Lewis sitting down with me here, the latest part of the conservative leadership series on True North. Leslie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being here. And for me as well. That concludes this episode of The Andrew Lawton Show. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.